Welcome to the Serve Conscious Podcast, where people and companies can learn the inner game of service and tap into the fullest power of the service opportunity. So join me and let's master the service mindset together and up-level service the world over. And I encourage you to check out my partner, the Institute for Organizational Mindfulness, which is on a mission to help people and companies to incorporate mindfulness into their culture and raise performance, efficiency, general happiness, and everything that we want from going to work. So link is in the show notes for you to go deeper into that as well as the mindful service movement. All right, let's get started. Hello, friends. Boy, am I excited to share this conversation with you. A while back, I got the opportunity to speak with Kenneth Starr, the Kenneth Starr, the former Solicitor General of the United States. From 89 to 93, he served. And later on, he probably became most publicly known when he was independent counsel on the case that investigated uh, Bill Clinton's perjury regarding his affairs with White House staff that he became notorious for. But actually, I'm most interested in his work as a lifelong public servant and as an educator of the law to so many. And of course, his new book, which our conversation sort of orbited around, and that is called Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. And Mr. Starr is a practicing Christian, but the book champions the constitutionally protected nature of religion, regardless of what it is, regardless of how, quote-unquote, esoteric or not mainstream that religion would be. It covers all of them, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wide-ranging account of religious freedom. And the reasons for writing that book and telling that story we got into, and they're very interesting, and they got into a lot of stuff I'm personally interested in regarding what makes a service essential and what services need protection in our country. And I love this conversation for a variety of other reasons. And one is that it may at first seem like a conversation that I don't normally have on this podcast. A lot of the time, the focus is how to thrive in the workplace, how to maximize the power of your service-driven life. So what do controversial topics like religion and politics, have to do with all of this? Well, firstly, these are conversations I've always been having and always been fascinated by, religion and belief systems. So I would be dishonest to not talk about stuff like that on the podcast because I'm always talking about stuff like this with friends, loved ones, and I have done so all my life. I used to work uh, as a summer job in a church, like cleaning it when I was like a teenager. And I would argue with the priests and the receptionists about, you know, the nature of reality and higher powers. And I would argue with my sweet, devoutly Christian grandparents about stuff like that, too. Whoever would step into the ring with me. And they were very patient as I ground my young mind against these ideas. And I think it's important to continue talking about them, even though it can risk alienating yourself. Because I have since evolved from being, you know, staunchly like anti-religion and like really agnostic and like, you know, screw any ideology telling me what reality is 
telling me what good and right and moral behavior is and all of that stuff, to really embracing all belief systems and ideologies, especially when I see the value and the good they're doing. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I'm certainly not a practicing Christian, but I couldn't be an honest champion of service without acknowledging how much Christian values have contributed to that vision of helping those that really need it, of thinking of others first. Christianity most beautifully articulates some of these values, as is the case with certain Buddhist perspectives, certain yogic perspectives, and certain highly rational non-religious perspectives as well. It all has a seat at the table in my life. And I would not have had such a full life-giving mission if I wasn't open-minded about these belief systems and the fact that the benevolent intentionality behind a lot of those principles have a lot to teach us. So I think the more public conversations around all of these huge questions around higher powers and what is truth and do these religious beliefs have value or not in our modern day society, all that stuff is really valuable. And you know what? You're having those conversations anyway, probably, right? Even if you're agnostic or atheistic or just a super hard-nosed rationalist, you're probably huddling up and talking with your other rationalist friends about how it's all such nonsense, right? Either way, these conversations are happening because I think we're wired to chew on these bigger questions. So keep having them. And have them in a civil way. And that's what Mr. Starr emphasized in his conversation with me. So whether or not you agree uh, with his viewpoints as a Christian, I'm not a practicing Christian either. And if I let that get in the way, it would disrupt my ability to connect to somebody that was very kind, so gracious, and really a font of knowledge and wisdom that provided so much food for thought. So I really hope you uh, dial into this conversation and stir up those questions about the wide range of belief systems that our society carries and how to be an agent of harmony within that. Here's my discussion with Kenneth Starr. Welcome everyone to the Serve Conscious Podcast. I am really excited to have a guest here that um, that I grew up with on the news media and uh, you might have heard about if you've been following anything going on in the world for the last uh, 30 years. I'm here with uh, Mr. Ken Starr. How are you today, Mr. Starr? I'm great. I'm absolutely great. Thank you for uh, thank you for the conversation. Absolutely. Me as well. We're going to talk about religion and politics today. And uh, if anyone's afraid of that uh, being at the dinner table, <laughs> then I suggest you, if you're a service professional listening to this or in any area of service, make that part of your game. Be able to talk about uh, religion and politics in any situation, especially if you may not agree with the person, if they are uh, cut from a completely different cloth. And um, actually, you just wrote a, a book, Mr. Starr, and I'm like so excited to talk about it because it seems to be like really applauded and a wonderful resource for people on any side of the political spectrum and of any sort of religious orientation. So um, yeah, can we start by talking about that and kind of what, what motivated you uh, writing that book? 
I was motivated, and thank you for the compliment, I was motivated by the pandemic and what was happening during the pandemic with uh, governors from sea to shining sea, shutting down churches and synagogues and so forth. And I thought, that's really not right. Uh, <laughs> and this is, of course, a public health emergency. No one, I think, of common sense doubted that the governors needed to take and mayors uh, extraordinary action. But some of the actions that were taken seemed to me to be quite inimical to our constitutional traditions to protect the exercise of religion. And that became so evident in several of the orders, but my unfavorite was an order of the governor of Nevada who allowed the casinos, so just take Caesar's Palace, to operate at 50% capacity, which is many hundreds of people, and but churches and synagogues and mosques were limited to 50 persons, no matter how large the auditorium, the sanctuary, the fellowship hall, and I said, that's just not right. So eventually the Supreme Court of the United States, and one of the purposes of my book is to say that overwhelmingly, over the last 40 years, the Supreme Court of the United States, by very wide majorities at times unanimously, reached pro-freedom results. We tend to think of the Supreme Court, yeah, there's to protect individual rights. So freedom of speech, the right of criminal defendants, you bet. That's why they are there. But the first 16 words of the First Amendment protect not just freedom of religion from the state creating the Church of Texas or the Church of Florida or the Church of the United States, but to protect the free exercise of religion. The free exercise of religion has to mean more than worshiping, but these gubernatorial orders impacted, and at times, especially in the Orthodox Jewish community, essentially forbade worship under Orthodox principles because of the limitation under uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, orders of the number of persons who could gather, which ended up affecting the Orthodox Jewish community that a quorum uh, under Jewish law could not be achieved. So anyway, I looked at that and said, this just isn't right. The Supreme Court has been standing four square for 40 years, 40 years in favor of religious freedom, almost always vindicating claims to freedom of conscience, the right of institutions, religious institutions to govern themselves, to fire teachers, in one example, in violation, presumptively, of the civil rights laws of the United States. We should be very grateful, I certainly am, for the civil rights laws of the United States. But to apply those laws to prevent, in the particular case, a church school from firing a teacher was viewed by unanimous Supreme Court, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a unanimous Supreme Court as violating the principles of free exercise of religion. So I thought it was time in light of the pandemic to remind those persons who are interested, whether they're people of faith or not of faith, but just friends of freedom, this is our constitutional heritage, and we need to restate that. As the great Samuel Johnson said to Boswell, we stand more frequently of being reminded than we do of education. Well, I need both education and reminding. 
this book is a reminder, it may be for some in education, a reminder of our constitutional heritage of freedom. Yeah, and it's uh, really been considered a great resource in that regard. I heard it. It uh, I haven't I haven't looked through all of it, but I heard it goes as far as to talk about how like the psychedelic religions, which are considered pretty fringe and esoteric, you know, within that whole uh, spectrum of you know uh, possible religions, um, how how their their freedoms are not being uh, properly observed, and it just goes really really deep. And uh, so matter no matter where you are uh, on the spectrum, uh, it's a really good resource to check into. And I think really uh, the pandemic being um, framed as the backdrop for this. Um, it's interesting. Just I've been watching my precious service industries get destroyed by it, you know, um, from hospitality to all of these things that really brighten our lives and really give meaning to our lives, um, whether it's going out to eat or to go, go to a religious service, which yeah. is like everyone's kind of spiritual resource. And it is kind of interesting how hard of a hit they took and, and how quickly they were considered non-essential and kind of blockaded in a way. So um, I think this is a really, really timely um, book. And if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of rewind a bit and kind of talk about your origin story. And, um, you know, you've kind of started out, I guess, as an attorney and an attorney for the highest offices of the land, and then in a sense, investigating and calling to task the highest offices of the land. So I'd just love to hear about your story and maybe what led up to this, this point uh, uh, in your life and your current mission. Well, it's certainly appropriate for the the zeitgeist, uh, the guiding principles of your conversations. I was always animated by a service uh, and trying to be of service to others and to be a useful member of the community. And I remember that sentiment uh, coming to the fore really in high school. Uh, so it goes back a, a long way that I, I was happiest when I was doing something for someone else. And a part of it, of course, is ambition. I was present in my class in high school and so forth. But one of the things that gave me great joy was doing things for the class or making uh, the school a little bit better and fairer and so forth, um, articulating uh, issues and concerns. And I, and I like that. We had no general strikes or violence or anything like that. It was pretty tame at a public high school in San Antonio, Texas. And so I was also just drawn to public service more generally, and I've just been blessed to have various opportunities to, and calls to serve. In my own view, I grew up in the Vietnam era, uh, era, and I was not called to serve in the military. And of course, we had a horrific loss of American lives, uh, then of young men, now it would be young men and young women uh, in the Vietnam conflict. And I think that simply reinforced, it wasn't a trigger, but it was a source of reinforcement that so many were called upon in that generation of the 1960s and into the 1970s to give their lives uh, for uh, purposes which many may very well think was misguided in terms of national policy and was it prudent policy, but they responded to the call. They didn't move to Canada. They didn't try to otherwise uh, avoid a service. And that's always been an inspiration to me as was of course, the uh, generation which I grew up as an early baby boomer with the sacrifice of what came to be called rightly so, the greatest generation of those who went overseas. And I just love, of course, they're quickly leaving this life uh, 
my brother-in-law uh, of my older sister, who's 16 years older than me, was a member of the Greatest Generation and served, saw uh, combat in, in, in the Pacific. And so I had such admiration for those who had served. And I think that was, again, just a reinforcement of an intrinsic sense that it also comes from my worldview that we are supposed to be serving others in uh, whatever way we can in matters great and small. So I viewed the law as a vehicle, as a platform for public service. So while I am engaged in private law practice now, I'm doing an enormous amount of work in the uh, area trying to frankly uh, bring uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, to account for some of its terrible uh, actions, and uh, both at a policy level and in litigation, uh, the tr mistreatment, the profound mistreatment of the Uyghur Muslim population. Those are things that get me energized, get me going. Uh, and so it's, I view it as um, both a call calling and a blessing to be able to, uh, to serve. And law is a wonderful platform for service. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, with, with any lawyer's journey, you can take the route of, you know, the private sector, which I guess is flashy and high paying, and you seem to always choose the public sector. And I, it seems like that driving force was always because the public sector is what concerned, I guess, public interests and, and really helping um, be part of a better world and being on that like battleground of debating what, uh, what a good and fair world is. Would that be a good assessment? It's a very uh, astute assessment. Uh, I will say in defense of private law practice that I've always been professionally satisfied in my service as a private lawyer. And one of the reasons, of course, is taking pro bono cases and the legal profession at its best, uh, and may it always operate at its best, will do a very goodly amount of service uh, entirely for free for the needy and so forth. Uh, and then uh, another dimension of public service, when I was in public service at the Justice Department, uh, we adopted in the office where I was privileged to serve in the office of the Solicitor General, we adopted a school in the District of Columbia in an at-risk uh, neighborhood. And then when I wasn't in public life, uh, in private practice, uh, I became, through our church, very involved in inner city high school in Washington, D.C., and helped through a ministry create essentially a, a boys club, girls club for, for both uh, young men and young women uh, for uh, after hours care, a safe place to go, and so forth. So whatever we're called upon to do, whether as lawyers, as private practice or as public servants, there are going to be plenty of avenues for us to serve the public good. Beautiful. So um, I really, uh, in our time together, uh, want to talk about uh, religion as much as we can fit into a discussion, even though it's it's an enormous discussion. And I'm, you know, curious because, you know, I work in an industry where people come in all the time and they have totally different backgrounds. And, you know, people will come in, they'll be super light, nice. They'll be super lovely people. And, um, and they'll tip really well. Like, you know, when I worked in the restaurant industry, um, right. but then, you know, people love to grumble about it. Like, oh, they're just crazy Christians or whatever. And, um, and it just seems to be a thing that always, always can be like a source of judgment, judgment and people will bristle at it. Even if someone's like an otherwise like lovely person. And, and I'm just wondering like, where do you think this comes from and how can we begin to kind of like let go of these biases so that we can kind of make more space and 
understanding for people who, you know, are, are coming to us looking, looking to connect and, and looking to have, you know, a much more, a much richer human connection um, in, in a service context or anywhere, you know, in, in life. Well, I think at the foundation is to treat uh, every human being uh, with human dignity and to try to use examples such as uh, Dr. King. Uh, I frequently, including in the book, refer to Dr. King. Uh, he uh, is utterly eschewed <clears throat> violence. So when people were justifying last spring violence, uh, I would summon up Dr. King. He would have no part of that, none. Uh, so I could call him to the witness stand and he would rebuke those who said, well, it's justified because look what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis no, does not justify violence. Uh, but at bottom, the idea of nonviolence and to be willing to face the persecution, the violence that he faced was he's going to treat everyone with fundamental human dignity, frankly, even when they don't deserve it, right? When they're on the horses and they're bludgeoning people and so forth, he's still nonetheless, and his letter from a Birmingham jail, I think would be helpful, <laughs> indeed required reading, especially for high school students who I think can really appreciate it if they haven't by the time they've graduated from high school. Before they enter college, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which is a Beautiful call, and it's a Christian witness. It's an overtly Christian witness, but it's a call for toleration and a call to his fellow clergy persons to say, I believe in uh, nonviolent disobedience, civil disobedience, which has a great tradition in this country. Well, when someone is civilly disobedient, what do we do with them? Well, we should still treat them with respect as opposed to bludgeoning them or burning down their businesses and and so forth. And so uh, I, I think that uh, the return to the idea that we're all human beings, from my perspective, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, but one of those is the right to minimal respect. So I, I really dis, I, I, I am dispirited when I hear people on both sides of the aisle speaking with utter disdain of the views of those with whom they don't agree. Uh, and the idea of cancel culture is utterly inimical to who we are as a free people and our constitutional traditions. That grows again out of my religious perspective that all voices are welcome to the conversation. And you don't try to squelch or quash a voice you say, all right, let's hear what you have to say. And as the prophet Isaiah said, come, let us reason together and let's let's have a conversation. At the end of the agree, end of the conversation, we may agree only to disagree, but can't we respect one another? So I hope that the tone after we've gone through a very difficult period, not that we're not in a difficult period, uh, that there will be, shall I just say, just greater mutual respect and understanding for one another. Yeah, I, I couldn't argue with that uh, call to action. And, um, you know, I think people kind of justify, uh, uh, you know, a real kind of 
um, toxic attitude towards something because of its own history. You know, they might look at a religion and see the blood in the water and say, well, this religion has a history of oppressing people and has a history of publicly shaming people. I, I can think of a lot of rig- religions that historically have lo- been like that a lot. I think that's changing a lot nowadays. Um, and, and yet, you know, like there are so many um, ideologies that have that same zealousness that aren't religious, but they think it's fine because it's not religious. And cancel culture has that public shaming zealousness too. And, um, and it, it seems maybe like maybe religion isn't the problem or belief in some higher power, but maybe uh, perhaps a zealous attitude towards it that's <laughs> to justify cruelty. What do you think of that? I think that's a wonderful uh, insight. Uh, in fact, uh, the Harvard sociologist, uh, Robert Putnam, uh, along with a professor at Notre Dame, uh, co-authored uh, a book a few years ago, and I love the title, American Grace. And it talks about the role of faith communities in making the world a better place. Uh, and that's just an empirical fact. I mean, sociologists can study this. And can say that where, for example, I mean, this is American political science peer-reviewed article that where countries allow in Christian missionaries, the uh, outcomes in the three great indicia of human flourishing, income, health, uh, education, go up. Well, why is that? It's because of the sense of call, especially from the Christian perspective, to reach out to those called in scripture, the least of these. So you're to help the least of these, the idea of the good Samaritan. You're to reach out to, you're you're not to pass by if people in a secular world and even understand, well, oh, I what hospital are you at? Well, I'm a good Samaritan hospital. Well, there's a history to that. It's two millennia old, it's a parable. And it's about two very religious people who pass by the wounded person. And then the person who was an outcast in the social order at the time steps in to save his life at at great personal uh, expense. It's a really powerful tribute to humanity and our common humanity. Uh, But the idea that, well, I disagree with you and therefore I don't listen to you. uh, I don't, not only do I not care for you, uh, I want to cancel your voice and I'm going to call you a deplorable or some other Uh, unfortunate uh, name. I think that is, frankly, uh, quite inimical to who we have historically been as a free people. So for every, well, religion has been used on 9-11 and so forth. Yes, but is that Islam? We can debate the theology of that. Others are more qualified. Or is that one branch <laughs> uh, burning at the stake and so forth. Well, how many centuries do we have to go back and so forth? Slavery and so forth. How many centuries do we have to go back? But from my perspective, the Christian community, the Christian outlook was reread Martin Luther King Jr., reread the abolitionists, the abolitionists, including in England. These were Christian voices, including the Quakers, saying, We have got to end the scourge of, of mankind. And so, okay, let's say here's some very bad things that have happened in the name of religion, but don't dismiss religious activity. In fact, 
as a student, uh, admittedly an amateur of uh, history, uh, I frequently remind people or educate them that the very founding generation, both the Continental Congress, uh, the, uh, the Congress, not the Continental Congress, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, then the first Congress of the United States under the Constitution, articulated these words in law. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. So there it is, the idea that you need faith communities to do what? To create a culture of what the founding generation calls civic virtue. And I, with all due respect to my humanist friends, there is no unifying principle that you can say, aha, I cannot do that because of, okay, well, what, what's your principle? Humanism, what, is, what does that mean in terms of the protection of life? Are you going to do uh, a cost-benefit analysis? Uh, are you going to pull the plug? And so forth. There are these great sensitive issues that, by my view, a faith perspective gives meaning and to, to life, the dignity of life in a power and a way that the humanist perspective simply does not. But God bless, if I may say so, the, the humanists and their perspective, their attitudes, their speeches, their ideas should, of course, be embraced. But I think if Robert Putnam of Harvard were here, he would say, I'll imagine that he would say this, where's the American Humanist Association hospital, orphanage, university, all those, look at Harvard, look at Yale, right? It took well over a century before the first public university was founded, right? And then all across America, it was religious orders that were, that were establishing universities, that were establishing orphanages, taking care of the widows and so forth. Now we have the, the welfare state, so we're in a very different position. But the point is, to this day, in every community, religious communities are reaching out and doing good works. Absolutely. And in terms of like a, a society, you know, like an, I, I guess you can say like, um, like a religiously optimized society um, in America or in any country, um, do you think like having as many different um, religions and religious voices is, is healthier than just maybe having like one, one dominant one? Oh, I think in a democratic uh, order, absolutely. That and and here's the key to recognize that we are a pluralistic society, and so let's respect our pluralism and the dignity of those who don't agree with us. It boils down to, as my friend Oz Guinness is prone to say, how do we live together with our deepest differences? Do we just want to shun one another? That's not a very satisfying way of living our lives? Do we want to just be yelling at one another? Gordon Gee, the president of West Virginia University, has been president of Brown University, Ohio State, a number of universities, said many years ago, and I heard it with my own ears, the world has become a shouting match. Well, it would be better if instead of shouting with one another, we just respected one another and say, uh-huh, I'm, I'm trying to understand. Your, I'm not going to agree with it, but I'm at least trying to understand your perspective. 
Absolutely. And then talking to so many interesting people like you um, over the years, I, uh, I I found nothing is more rewarding than just asking questions and, and, and being curious. And and I try to take that into my life and actually having a podcast has totally changed how I kind of navigate uh, just you know, my daily interactions in life. So I recommend if no one wants to buy recording equipment and start a podcast <laughs> to uh, to listen to Mr. Star's words and just uh, say, hey, let's let's talk about this. Right. So I feel like um, I mean, we just have a few minutes left here. I, I really want to talk about I guess you can say like religions that just sort of, you know, appropriate the term in order to be able to kind of do what they want to do. Right. Um, and you live in Waco, Texas and Waco, Texas is a historic place. Um, and I found, you know, that, that siege, I think it was in 93, uh, between yeah. uh, David Koresh and the police, a really interesting, let's call it like an analogy or a synecdoche of this, um, debate about religious freedom. Cause he was certainly like planting that flag and saying religious freedom. And the cops were saying, well, no, and here's why. And both sides kind of made an interesting argument and it all got kind of murky and ended horribly. So I'm really curious your take on that, if you think it's a good metaphor for what we're talking about. Well, I hope not, because what was apparently uh, underway, and I've not made a study of what actually happened within the compound that gave rise to the law enforcement uh, initiative, whether it was well handled or to the contrary, uh, was really terribly botched up at a terrible loss of life. But I gather the charge was colorable claims of child abuse. And that is a compelling, if that is true, I'm not saying it is, but if that is true, then that is a compelling reason for government to step in and to say, I'm sorry, but the public good outweighs your interest in, quote, individual uh, liberty, religious liberty, religious autonomy, and so forth. So there are those compelling reasons why government can, under certain circumstances, come in. I think we've been through this with the pandemic uh, and say, I'm sorry to everyone, but we're going to have to take extraordinary measures for a while. What And one of the points I make in the book, where the governors went wrong was to tilt the scales in a way that ended up as a practical matter discriminating against religious belief and religious exercise. And that's a complete constitutional no-no. And I chronicle that, how the idea of equality and non-discrimination is such an important against religious institutions that you can't do that. That as we began the conversation, Caesar's Palace, yes, have your crowds, but Calvary Chapel, no, uh, you're non-essential. So, and I'm so glad you used that term because the idea that Walmart and liquor stores are essential, but places of worship are not, is utterly inimical to who we are as a free people. A secularist may say, yeah, that's right. That's not essential. That's a luxury. No, it's not. Not in a society whose constitution specifically and expressly protects religious exercise, not just belief. How are you going to regulate someone's beliefs? But religious exercise, the exercise of those beliefs. And there is necess it's necessary. Uh, and then this isn't Ken speaking, this is the Constitution speaking through the oracles of the, the nine justices. And uh, I want to reiterate before we close that the principle I'm talking about that includes the idea of the autonomy of these institutions 
such as church schools, to hire and fire people, including firing people in violation of what it would otherwise be a violation of civil rights laws, is nonetheless protected. Protected by what? Protected by the Constitution of the United States. And that's a lesson that I think some people find very difficult to accept, but that is our constitutional rule. And you say, well, those are only conservative justices who would embrace such a benighted view. I beg to differ. Look at the result in the case, and I describe this in the book. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg joins the unit by definition. She joined the unanimous opinion saying the Christian school can fire someone whose civil rights may have been violated. Why? Because her civil rights were trumped by the ability of the Christian school to decide who should teach and who should not teach. Yeah. And thanks for that reminder about the pandemic and just kind of revealing um, you know, when the chips fell, where our priorities really were. And um, it really did seem that we, we wor worshipped at the altar of capitalism, really, before um, all the other all the other ingredients of a society. And a great teacher of mine has always said, you know, like, that's where your energy flows. That's what you're worshipping. So, you know, is it something wholesome? And is it something life giving? Or is it just is it something superficial? But gosh, we can go deep into that. I need to let you go now and get on with your uh, evening. But uh, thank you so much for coming. This has been a, a really energizing conversation and I can't wait to share it. Um, before you go, is there anything you'd like to share with anyone or anywhere you'd like to, to point them? Well, I would simply say, let's try as best we can to display the attitude that James Madison displayed on the floor of the House of Representatives in 1789. He did not think as a constitutional matter, and he was a very fine lawyer, that a Bill of Rights was necessary. But he said, because North Carolina had not ratified the Constitution and Rhode Island had not. And so he said, according to the Congressional Globe, this is not a word-for-word -word transcript, but these words come back to me, especially at a time of great division, culturally and politically in the country. In the spirit of amity and friendship, a little bit of synonyms there, but of amity and friendship, let's do what these opponents of the Constitution, namely those who demanded a Bill of Rights, let's accede. We don't need it. The Bill of Rights, I think he was wrong, we did. We don't need it, he thought, but let's have it. Let's come, let us reason together and come to a resolution that unites people rather than divides people. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And everyone, uh, check out Mr. Starr's book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. There will be a link in the show notes if you want to explore a wonderful uh, in-depth account of, uh, of First Amendment rights in, in America and our freedom to gather and worship as we please, uh, wherever you come from. All right. Thank you again so much. Um, I'll let you go now, but you have a, a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Serve Conscious podcast. Please check out the homepage, www.serveconscious.com, to dig into all the past episodes and all those amazing conversations I've had. Get on that mailing list, get access to free workshops, and all of the content dropping into your mailbox whenever it's ready. I'm Stefan Ravalli. Such a pleasure. See you later. <laughs>